Welcome back to Russian Roulette, the podcast from the Russian Eurasia Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I'm your host, Jeff Mankoff. Uh, today, we sit down with Marlene Laurel, who is the Research Professor of International Affairs, uh, co-director of uh, the Program on New Approaches to Russian and Eurasian Security, uh, PONARS, and Associate Director of the Institute for European, Russian, and Eurasian Studies at the Elliott School at George Washington University. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, the far right, uh, the Soviet Union's connection to the far right in Europe, uh, and how it does and does not provide um, background for the current Russian Federation's uh, engagement with the far right. Uh, it's a really interesting discussion. I uh, hope you'll enjoy it and be illuminated. Uh, let's get started. I'm joined in the studio today by Marlene Laurel. Marlene, welcome to Russian Roulette. Thank you. So you have a, a new book out uh, about the history of the Soviet, not the Russian, but the Soviet government's connection to far right. That's kind of a fascinating story. Um, could you maybe give us a little bit of an introduction to um, how you got interested in this topic and what you found when you were doing research for the book? Yeah, of course. That that's really that was fascin a fascinating discovery for all of us. Also, so it's a collective volume. So it was a, a kind of collective work. And what we were really interesting is was trying to see what was the prehistory of the current honeymoon, if we can say, between uh, Russia and the European far right. And we discovered more than what we thought we would find. We are used to always think about the connection between the Soviet Union and, and the European left because of the Marxist and, and communist ideology. We are also used to think about the European far right be, being very anti-communist. And so in a sense, there is this kind of ideological framework that mm -hmm. we put on ourselves that doesn't allow us to look at the prehistory of this relationship. And so when we try to kind of look at that, we realize that there was really always a part of the European far right that was for sure anti-communist, but that could be very Russophile. Mm -hmm. Because it was admiring, right. of course, the orthodoxy, the Tsarist yes. regime. It was very pro-white Russian. Exactly, pro-white Russian, hoping for the kind of the big eternal Russia to come back. Mm -hmm. And also, interestingly, during Cold War decade, they were part of the far right that was so anti-US and anti-NATO mm. that they were considering that, well, a tactical alliance <laughs> with the Soviet Union is maybe mm. not the worst for Europe. Mm. So who were some of those uh, figures or some of those parties. Yeah, so they are, we have been looking, we try to identify the different moments and personalities of this dialogue. So, of course, even before the Soviet Union, during the late Tsarist era, you had neo-Slavophiles and Black Hundreds who yeah. had connection with what was the European far right at that time. In the 20s, of course, the immigration played a very important role. The white immigration in Europe with its kind of admiration for, for fascist regime, even if, of course, not all kind of supported the Nazi Germany attacks against the Soviet Union, still there was mm -hmm. this kind of admiration and that right. created the first kind of links. People like Ivan Ilin. People like Ivan Ilin who were kind of admiring the Italian uh, fascist regime, but who didn't support it. Uh, Germany attacks on the Soviet Union. Some did. Mitri Merizovsky, for uh -huh. example, was really supporting the, the German in invasion of, of the Soviet Union. 
Then we also looked, and that's something that where, in fact, a lot of research is going on in Russia now among Russian historians, is to look at collaboration in mm -hmm. the Soviet Union with Nazi Germany mm -hmm. and the kind of motivation of Soviet citizens to cooperate with Germany very mm -hmm. often for kind of anti-Stalin right. uh, uh, feeling. Right. So, again, I'm curious who some of these people are. I mean, there's a well-established historical tradition around the, the followers of Vlasov uh, who were execrated in the in the post-World War II era as traitors to the motherland. But does this, this goes beyond just, you know, those individuals, right? Yeah, it was a broader trend. And now you really have several Russian historians looking at much a lot of several different localized movement of collaboration with Nazi Germany that we are not directly connected with the Vlasov. Yeah, and this um, isn't, we're not talking about Ukrainian nationalists either. No, These, we are talking Russia. about Russians. Yeah. Yes, yes, absolutely. And then to uh, go back to your question about personalities, what I found really, for me, what the most interesting is more kind of post-Stalinist right. Soviet Union, where you have this very interesting parallel trend or where both among dissident circles, underground circle, and among some Soviet Soviet state structures, the party and Komsomol, a kind of progressive rediscovery mm -hmm. of Tsarism, Orthodoxy, Black Hundred, and this kind of immigration connection. Mm. And that's where you see paradoxically, so both at the official level among people who were part of, for example, what is called the Russian Party, so the party of Russian nationalists inside the Soviet structure, and the dissidents, the rediscovery of exactly the same text and mm -hmm. the same people and the finding in European far-right tradition a kind of way to answer what was happening in the Soviet Union. And one very interesting case, for example, is the one of Nikita Mikhalkov, because uh, yeah. we all know him now as being a very vivid supporter, the film director, a vivid supporter of, of Putin is also very clearly a monarchist, is supporting uh, the rehabilitation of the white immigration in the Soviet Union, but his father was one of the big names of this Russian party, mm. and family of the father was in immigration with some connection with European far right when they were in France. So you can really see some kind of family connection of rehabilitating or kind of cultivating this tradition. Now, what was this Russian party? The Russian party, so it really emerged in the 60s, almost like an institution like an informal institution, let's say, inside the Komsomol and the, some of the, the party structure, especially in Moscow, of a group of so official figure, people having civil servant position inside the, mm -hmm. the Soviet administration, trying to defend what they were considering as the uh, rights of the ethnic Russians being kind of destroyed by mm. the Soviet construction. Even though they were working for the Soviet government and presumably were members of the Communist Party. Absolutely. They were members of the Communist Party and they were having this kind of very ambiguous dual position of criticizing the Soviet Union for being too generous toward mm -hmm. other people, for building an empire that in fact was costing too much mm -hmm. to the ethnic Russian. And so they were able to kind of grow and develop in the 60s, 70s under Brezhnev. And in the 80s, some of them became the famous Pamyat yeah. movement that will after be the kind of school for Russian nationalists mm -hmm. during perestroika time. And was there an official knowledge of or recognition that this was a phenomenon in the 60s and 70s? Did the party know that these people were 
participating in this kind of an organization? Did it try to go after them in some way or did it approve of what they were doing, at least tacitly? Well, there was a kind of tacit approval because many people at the high level of the Soviet state were more or less sharing some of the mm -hmm. arguments of the, the Russian party, also because a large part of the, the high level uh, communist establishment were very ambiguous towards Soviet Jews, for example. So there was a lot of shared mm -hmm. kind of ideological feature that they were uh, uh, having and many very famous uh, uh, Russian writers of that time that were really published by official uh, 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 publishing houses, the one of the Communist Party, were known for being uh, like very close to the Russian parties. Okay, and then this nationalist, maybe underground isn't exactly the right word, but right-wing counter-establishment exists inside the Soviet Union. What was the nature of their connection to the far right in Europe, and what were they seeking to achieve through their collaboration with uh, the European right? So they are Several examples. For uh, so, one of the most interesting examples was uh, um, uh, Glazunov, the very mm -hmm. famous official uh, uh, painter Ilya Glazunov, who who passed away last year or two years ago, who was able, in the name of the party, to travel to Europe in the 60s. And he went to France. He made connection with the Russian immigration, mm -hmm. who then put it in touch with Jean-Marie Le Pen. So at that time, Le Pen was not. Uh, uh, the, the president of the National Front because the front was not existing in the 60s mm -hmm. yet. But the connection was, for example, right. already made through official were, travels. Yeah. yeah, And the view, his views were already right. uh, established. And then we have among the more underground circle, the dissident one, one of the most famous kind of Bohemian underground circle, the Eugenski circle, mm. was in touch with also some European far-right leader. They were receiving literature through misdat or through mm. other kind of underground systems. So they were both kind of almost official, con I mean, connection by some official person who are authorized to travel, mm -hmm. and then kind of exchange of literature for the more kind of mm -hmm. underground circles. So when we think about the connections today between the Russian government and various far-right movements in Europe, that often is understood as taking the form of financial support, uh, organizational support, and other kinds of things that the, the Russian establishment is doing on behalf of the European far right. Um, given the ideological disparities and everything else, was this kind of activity also taking place during the Soviet period? Or was it more just these kind of personal connections between individuals in this uh, Russian nationalist uh, counter-establishment and then members, individual members of the right in Europe? No, it was personal connection during Soviet time. There was mm. nothing in the mm. Soviet official policy that was connecting directly with the far right. So it was more that these mm. personal connections were there mm. and then suddenly they could get okay. kind of reactivated and operationalized mm. in the current context. Okay. So you know, there were these institutional connections with left-wing parties in Europe. Though. Yes. So it, it wasn't similar to what we have now, where there's this sort of Russian support for anti-establishment parties, regardless of their ideological predilections. So this was more the anti-establishment parties of the left were receiving Soviet support, but on the right, there are these kind of amorphous and uh, until now pretty unexplored connections. 
Yeah, in Soviet time, of course, the connection to the European left were very structured and very clear. There were kind of mm -hmm. ideological boundaries to right. not to cross to get the Soviet support while now... And there were institutions underpinning exactly, it, like the yes. common form and, and yeah. things like that. While now it's much more flexible, plastic, underground also. It's different personalities, mm -hmm. different groups. They can compete with each other. It's unclear where are the kind of real ideological boundaries. Sometimes they don't seem very clear. So it's a much more kind of flexible policy now. Hmm. You, you mentioned um, Glazunov, um, but are there other individuals whose activity or whose interactions with uh, the European right and the Soviet period uh, have continued into the post-Soviet period or who sort of laid the foundation for post-Soviet Russia's engagement with the European far right? Well, so we have among the, the most famous names, so we have Glazunov, we have the Mikhalkov mm -hmm, family. Yeah. Another example is uh, Shulgin, who was okay. a, a very important emigre, white emigre, who came back to the Soviet Union, got mm -hmm. jailed, sent to Gulag, and then after released, and who kind of maintained the connection for a lot of people, but he died in the 70s. And then we have, at the late 70s, early 80s, the appearance of this Yuzhinsky, I mean, the, the development of new trend among the, the Yuzhinsky circle. And that's where we see, for example, the famous or infamous Alexander Dugin emerging already in the Soviet underground, already reading far right's mm -hmm. uh, main doctrines and trying to translate them in, into Russia. And so that was already there since mm -hmm. the early 80s. Yeah, can you talk a little bit about Dugin? I mean, he's a figure who gets a lot of uh, attention in the West as to the extent that there is attention paid to Russian intellectuals. I know you've written about him as kind of a standalone figure. So can you talk a little bit about his development in this milieu, the emergence of his views and how that changed or evolved from the Soviet period to the to the present. Yeah. Well, Dugin is an important figure, but I think we tend to kind of overestimate his role. He's not a guru of the right. regime. He has quite limited connection to the Kremlin and to the circles around the presidential administration. There are other kind of nationalist-oriented people who are much more powerful and much more connected. But he's really interesting because he was really, and on that it's, it's really something that <laughs> is quite unique. The first one to really kind of read all this European far-right literature and put it in Russian in all sense, like translate it into Russian language, but also adapt it uh -huh. to a kind of Russian narrative and yeah. Russian context. So on that, he's a quite unique uh, uh, personality. And in fact, when you read it from his first text of the late 80s to nowadays, it didn't evolve a lot. Mm. He maintained a quite steady perception of what he considered really important, but the environment around him <laughs> changed a mm -hmm. lot. And so suddenly... It's become got... more congenial to his views. Exactly. But the connection he had with European-Italian far-right have always been there since the, the perestroika time. So now, of course, the condition have changed. And so he has been developing some small links with US far-right. For mm -hmm. example, a few years ago, that was not there before because the context was not allowing right. for this kind of, of connection. But in the, the role relationship between Russia and the European far right today is just one among many others. But mm -hmm. he was the first one to right. kind of initiate these contacts, but he's not the main one now. Mm -hmm. So yeah, let's talk a little bit about the current connection between Russia and the European far right, um, because it does seem to be more organized and structured than it was in the Soviet period. Um, what is behind it in your view? I mean, is it really about ideological affinity? Is it about uh, potential of right-wing groups in Europe to be a force for disruption? Is, is there more to it? 
I think it's quite complicated because there are, in fact, several actors on the Russian side, and we tend not to tr to dissociate them. Mm -hmm. So we tend to see just these kind of big things we call Russia. Russian influence, yeah. and then we try to see that as the kind of heavy, the hidden hand beyond everything bad happening in Europe. And in fact, when you really try to look by country and by group, you can see that it's very quite different dissociated strategies. Mm -hmm. You have pure kind of far-right international connection. So groups who just connect because they really share ideological mm -hmm. principle, but they are the not... The nationalist international. Exactly, the nationalist international, but they are usually not very well connected with the Kremlin itself because mm -hmm. they are seen as too, too radical for what the presidential administration or the Russian government can can take and, and validate. Then you have people who are in this kind of gray zone where it's clear that they have some connection to the presidential administration. At the same time, they are not kind of officials of the Russian state who are building connection, not with too radicalized group, but with more the kind of populist mm -hmm. party that are now growing uh, uh, in Europe. And then you have the few groups who can really get access to the Russian government as an institution and mm -hmm. sign uh, agreement, partnership. And in that case, it's quite rare. I mean, even for the French National Front, it was quite difficult for Marine Le Pen to get an appointment <laughs> with Vladimir Putin. It was seen as a big success for her to get it. So for the moment, it's the FPO in Austria mm -hmm. and the, the, the Lega Nord in Italy who really were able to build official links with the Russian government and with United Russia. So it's really important, I think, to dissociate all these levels. Otherwise, we have this kind of, of, uh, of vision of something that is huge, while in fact, it's quite uh, more comp much more complex. And if we want to see what is Russian really kind of strategy, well, I think it's a multiple level, multi-layer one, there is clearly the will to be in touch and support everybody who is in favor of Russia. Mm -hmm. So in that case, it doesn't have really kind of ideological underlining except to be in favor of discussing with Russia. That's why also their connection with some European leftist mm -hmm. party in France, with the Linke in mm -hmm. Germany. So these links are there and clearly they are not ideological in terms of values. They are purely kind of geopolitical who is in favor of dialoguing with Russia. Then I think Russia is much more interesting in trying to get support from mainstream parties and big businesses because they know that they are the one that can be in government or influence mm -hmm. policy decision on, over the sanction and so on. So, so in a sense, the far right is really interesting for a real kind of political impact only if he can access government. Right. And until recently, until Austria and Italy, the Russian support for the far right was not delivering anything concretely mm -hmm. so much. Now, of course, it's changing now that the connection have been made more more official. So I think they are the, the trying to reach to support party that will reach a government level. And if it's not possible, then there is sometime clearly for some group just a strategy of spoiling, mm -hmm. you know, the European political scene and pushing this kind right. of anti-EU, anti-establishment, anti anti-migrant narratives. Mm -hmm. So th there is this narrative that you hear a lot in the West uh, that you know the, the far right in Europe and in, in the U.S. is is in the pocket of the Kremlin that the Kremlin is kind of the uh, the godfather of, uh, of the far right more generally that it's sort of ideologically committed to the triumph of right wing groups and right wing ideology. It seems the story is a little bit more complicated. 
Yeah, I think it's much <laughs> more complicated than that. And I think it's really a mistake to refuse to see that the European far right current popularity is really a homegrown yeah. phenomenon that has very deep roots in what is happening currently. Yeah, in and many the European same can be countries. said about the United States. Exactly. And the same about the United States. I mean, they, they, they are kind of long political and societal trends in our Western society that give rise to this kind of populist liberalism, we call it whatever mm -hmm. we want. And on that, Russia has, in fact, just an echo chamber effect. It can amplify some mm -hmm. of these narratives. It doesn't create them. It doesn't really shape them. Mm -hmm. It also means it doesn't control them. Right. The honeymoon is going on. The day the honeymoon stops, I'm not sure Russia has a lot of leverage to put to try to maintain this kind of Russophile narrative. And when we look at the electorate, it just has no impact. People who are voting for far-right parties in Europe or in, or in the U.S. don't care about, about the Russia. foreign policy in Russia. Yeah. They really have, at the best, they think Putin is a strong leader and a mm -hmm. good guy. But they usually have no clue about foreign policy <laughs> and they just don't care. They care about domestic issues. Mm -hmm. um, so then is the, the Russian embrace of far-right ideology mostly instrumental? Yeah, I think it's mostly instrumental. It's also a product of Russian... Uh, a leadership being unable to secure enough support among European mainstream mm -hmm. government parties after especially the Ukrainian crisis right. to try to, to, to feel that Russia had its voice in, in, in the Europe, on the European political theater. So when the mainstream parties got, were lost, then Russia mm -hmm. didn't have a lot What's of other left? choice exactly to find who is ready to discuss. And that's something interesting that we also tend to forget is that we tend, we tend to underlook who in Russia among Russian officials are unhappy with this mm -hmm. kind of honeymoon with the far right. And there are people in the Russian establishment saying it's not the right strategy. Right. But with whom can we talk? Give us people to talk and to dialogue and then yeah. we will shift. So I think it's, it's also an important element of the discussion because it, mean, it has a direct policy implication that if there is no one for yeah. dialoguing, then it will be only the extremes. Yeah. And do you think that this turn towards the embrace of the far right for geopolitical reasons has any connection to the conservative cultural turn domestically within Russia, the sort of embrace of quote unquote traditional values and the anti-LGBT legislation and that sort of thing? Well, I think it's arrived like almost like an axis of convenience that was used, but the two processes are for me quite dissociated. Mm -hmm. The conservative mm -hmm. value turn in Russia has really some domestic reason after Balotnaya protest and mm -hmm. so on. So there, it has its own chronology inside the Russian political landscape. Right. It's and more then, about Russian politics than it is about Exactly. It's policy. about Russian politics. And then suddenly it creates a common language with the European far right, but that wasn't created for that. Okay. Um, so for those of us who uh, sort of, you know, follow the, the Ponar's listserv, um, there's been a, uh, a, a back and forth uh, recently that you had a big hand in um, with uh, Tim Snyder about whether Russia is a fascist power or a fascist country or about the meaning of fascism. Um, could you talk a little bit about uh, the origin of the the debate and sort of where you uh, were you and, and Tim Snyder, who we've uh, we haven't had on the podcast, I guess, but we had him come and, and give a speech here. Um, where your where the substance of the of the conflict is? Well, it's it's mostly based on my 
own kind of research on the nature of the Russian political regime and the, the kind of ideological background of the, the current presidential administration. And I was really kind of worried about the rise of this labeling of fascism used. So, of course, it's used in political circles, but that's understandable. Mm. Yeah, the, it's, it's the, a term of appropriate, right? It's, exactly. I mean, this is a Soviet so legacy in some ways. <laughs> exactly. It's a Soviet legacy. And so it gets kind of revamped now in, in, in many Western countries, in Ukraine, in the Baltic states. So that's one level of the, of the discussion. What I found more kind of concerning is to see also this terminology emerging among academics mm -hmm. and in the scholarly debates without what I consider being a kind of serious and and uh, academically based uh, discussion. So Timothy Snyder has been probably the most vocal, the most visible <laughs> of this uh, uh, figure, but he's not the only one. Mm -hmm. Alexander Motil, uh, Vladislav mm -hmm. Inoziemtsev. There have been suddenly several right. scholars who begin using this term of fascism to describe the, the Putin regime. Mm -hmm. And I think, well, first, it's a serious accusation. And then if we want to really m make it seriously, it should be really studied and, and, and not mm -hmm. used in a kind of infla yes. inflated term. Always be judicious in your use of the F word. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And then also, I mean, I'm always surprised of, of seeing quite few reactions, for example, from, you know, association of victims mm -hmm. of Nazi uh, or, or violence, because the more you use the term, in a sense, the more you also kind of delegitimize the, the level of suffering of those who were the, the victim mm. of the real, <laughs> historically uh, uh, proven uh, uh, fascist regime. So I think if we want to see, to use this fascism as a kind of analytical category, there are a lot of things that needs to be discussed that are not, haven't been discussed by Snyder mm. or by other. And that's where I wanted to kind of intervene. First, I'm not sure that the term is the best kind of prism to describe mm -hmm. the Russian regime. And if some scholars consider it is, then very well. But then they need to make the demonstration why fascism would be a better interpretative right. term that, I don't know, authoritarian, illiberal. Mm -hmm. So what are the characteristics that, or what are the features that would characterize what you consider to be a quote-unquote fascist regime that are missing in Russia? Well, there are several of them. And of course, you know that the literature on fascism is huge and there are a lot of debates among specialists about what they want to see at the kind of uh, uh, core uh, criteria. I think clearly in terms of the level of state violence, mm -hmm. the level of repression is in Russia mm -hmm. is not what it is traditionally in the regimes we consider fascist. The, the structuring of a, a doctrinal kind of a bringing or the level of ideological pressure put on the society coming from the state seems to me quite limited. Mm -hmm. There is no, of course, genocidal policy. Right. There is no ethnic groups being targeted in Russia mm -hmm. as being the main. Yeah. Well, uh, and there's no sort of mass mobilization. There's there is the no mass mobilization. Of... And so the few attempts by the Russian regime to mobilize mass or young people like the Nashi and so mm -hmm. on got quite fail, failed quite rapidly. And the regime itself realized it was not an easy tool to use. Right. And it's one that can get out of hand sometimes. Exactly. Another important element when we look more at the ideological definition of fascism is that to be fascist, you really, really need to believe that a kind of revolutionary violence is needed to create a new country, a new mankind. You mm -hmm. really don't have that right. kind of 
revolutionary ideology in Russia, this hope that the future will bring something mm -hmm. wonderful. On the contrary, Russia is the statu quo-oriented power, a conservative one, fearing the future mm -hmm. more than hoping for a kind of, you know, ultra tabula rasa revolutionary violence that will change everything. Mm -hmm. What kind of response have you gotten to the to the critique of this um, sort of fascist paradigm um, from among the scholarly community, from among uh, Russia watchers more generally? I mostly got positive comments with people saying that, well, it was kind of long overdue uh, a moment to open the discussion and also to kind of attack Snyder's on his definition of Russia, the fascist country. There was, of course, people who took his side, mostly people who came up, in fact, not with really arguments defending Russia, the fascist, but more about Snyder's own positioning as a public intellectual mm -hmm. in the U.S., kind of asking the, the citizens to kind of wake up. So it's more about his, his citizen kind of positioning mm -hmm. that about his kind of scholarly arguments, also mm -hmm. about the need to defend Ukraine, which I think are just not the right answer because that's not mm -hmm. what I was challenging. Yeah, that's a separate issue. That's a separate issue, yeah. So I think, I hope the discussion will continue because I think it's really important for the academic community to try to dissociate itself from the kind of inflation of labels that we yeah. see emerging. Yeah, yeah. Well, like you said, it's a very explosive term and its use has political consequences. And so, you know, I would agree with you. I think if we're going to use that term, then we have to be precise about what it means and we have to use it in a precise way. Exactly. Which, in fact, doesn't mean that there is that we shouldn't have a discussion about is Russia a fascist country? But in that case, we need to be very clear about which mm. element are we interested in looking at, right. which kind of feature... Mm do we see that mm -hmm. we could qualify yeah. as, as a fascist? And I see some of them, but they were, for example, never discussed right. by this uh, um, uh, scholar. So I think some aspect of the kind of the aesthetics of the regime, the kind of body language, mm -hmm. you know, the biker, martial arts culture mm -hmm. that the presidential administration, well, it has yeah. feature that you could qualify across to Italian fascism. Yeah. So I think, but that's usually not, not what is brought in the discussion. And I think also another important element is that, well, in fact, there is probably more continuum between democracy and fascism that we want to kind of <laughs> recognize. Mm -hmm. And what was really interesting for me is to rediscovering Umberto Eco. Mm. He had a very famous article about Ur fascism, so where he lists kind of 14 or 16 main feature of what is the fascist regime. And when you read the list in today's US or today's Europe, you realize that we have a lot of these features are there. Right. Does that mean that the US or Europe are now fascist? No. So the point is that you, you may have even in democracy, fascist element mm -hmm. or tendencies or features that are there because they are also part of the kind of, you know, populist democracy transformation. Mm -hmm. So the point is that how many features do you need to be right. qualified Before, as a fascist yeah, regime? If you make yeah. it a black or white yeah, choice, exactly. then right, who gets to be on which side? Yeah. Um, I think the other thing here is that the the widespread use of, of the term fascist to describe Russia or another country, in part as a result of the, the sort of poverty of our categories for thinking about these things, right? We haven't really come up with a better way of characterizing a regime like Russia, which, as you said, has certain elements of the 20th century fascist governments. It also has 
Soviet legacies. It has inheritances from the Russian Empire. It has some it democratic has, features. Yeah, it's a little it has, bit of a lot of different yeah, things. Neoliberal feature. Yeah. It's a postmodern right. country on many um, aspects. But figuring out how to make mm. sense of all of that under one roof is, is something that I think a lot of us uh, still struggle with. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the caution about uh, you know, being too liberal in your use of the F word, I think, is, is well taken. Yeah. Uh, so, Marlon, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thanks for joining us. Uh, that's it today. There's a link to Marlene's bio and to the uh, volume that she edited in the show notes. Uh, once again, uh, for those of you who haven't done so already, you should subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Uh, you can leave us a rating and a review there as well. Uh, if you're not on iTunes, you can check us out and subscribe on either Google Play or SoundCloud. Uh, sign up, uh, let us know what you think, and keep spreading the word. Also, uh, send in your mailbag questions. Uh, we're going to do another mailbag segment here soon. Uh, you can send questions to rep at csis.org and put the words Russian roulette in the subject line. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter at CSIS Russia, and you can follow either Olya or myself directly. Uh, Olya is at Olya Oliker. I'm at Dr. J. Mankoff. And finally, uh, as ever, big, big thank you to everybody who puts in the time and effort to make Russian Roulette happen every two weeks. Uh, that includes our research associate and program manager, Cyrus Newland, our intern, Kimberly Schuster, and the whole CSIS external relations and iLab team. Thanks again. We will see you, or you'll hear from us, in two weeks. <laughs>